Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Thank you for joining the Impactful Conversations podcast series, part of MoFo Perspectives, where we discuss how impact investors and companies have achieved positive and measurable social and environmental impact alongside financial return. My name is Michael Santos, and I'm an associate at Morrison and Forrester in the Social Enterprise and Impact Investing Group. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Bobal Gupta, who is the president and CEO of Pacific Community Ventures, which is a community development financial institution, or CDFI, based in Oakland, California. Bobal, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'd like to start first with maybe a little bit of your background, uh, your work in the impact investing space, and maybe a little bit about your path to becoming president and CEO of of, uh, Pacific Community Ventures. Sure, happy to, thanks. So my path starts, uh, and I think it's worth mentioning, I grew up as a child in India, in Delhi, and I found myself during college and since really interested in why markets didn't work the same way in, in that case, lesser developed places uh, and where markets failed. So I started my career in microfinance in India, um, really looking at like, well, how do we do you know, investing in micro businesses? What does this look like to uplift women in particular in that case? And then most of my work for the first half of my career was in emerging markets, developing countries, looking at how we bring public and private partnerships together between government, investors, companies, et cetera, to really try to figure out how we solve for market failure. It wasn't until after the 2008 financial crisis when I was running um, impact investing and entrepreneurship at the Clinton Global Initiative that I really focused even more on the U.S. market, which I suppose for better or for worse, possibly worse in this case, looked more and more like a developing country with increasing wealth disparity, diverse small business owners and low wage workers being further and further left behind. And so that's really when I got to know the CDFI marketplace in the US and how many similarities and differences there were with micro lenders abroad um, and started to do more of that work um, into the US. And so really bringing my background in innovative finance and partnerships more towards how we try to solve for that for entrepreneurs working in the US as well. Uh, and then specifically to PCV, I met them actually during that time when they were engaged in some of the national policy work, um, launching the National Impact Investing um, Task Force under the Obama administration. And then um, since then, I rejoined them as a board member a few years ago, really to advance the integrated approach that they have that's pretty unique all focused towards trying to create good jobs through small business owners in the U.S. And that's a mission that really brings together my impact investing as well as direct with entrepreneurs work. Um, so was excited to be able to take over the CEO role last year when the opportunity came up. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, based on your, your history and the work you're doing now, you've had a lot of experience uh, with kind of public and private partnerships, which we we may get into a a little more at the end of the podcast. You've obviously been involved in this space for a while, and I'm sure you can attest that impact can mean a variety of things. And people probably often focus impact where they have an interest or passion. Uh, For some people that could be on the environment, uh, on healthcare, social justice issues, any mass incarceration. And I think, you know, these all can very much uh, be intertwined at times. Uh, but I'm wondering, how do you define impact and, and how does that tie into uh, your work and, and maybe PCV's mission? 
we really think about impact and purpose as intentionality. So I think that's one really key differentiator between the impact investing space and what was you know, previously more traditional investing or still is. Are you coming into it with the intent to measurably change specific social or environmental impact metrics that you care about? And therefore, the intentionality piece really drives your approach and the how you come in, which is why it is so key. So when we think about, in PCV's case, um, our intentionality shows up in our theory of change when we talk about how we're trying to bring together our affordable lending, our small business advising, and our impact investing research and consulting work all into measurable outcomes around good jobs. Are we providing more affordable lending? Are we increasing the diversity in our lending portfolio and our advising portfolio year over year? Are we, through our small business owners, helping them not only grow their business measurably, but also improve the quality of the jobs they offer that inherently then have a much better impact on addressing racial and gender wealth gaps and having a much, much more aligned intent towards community wealth building, right? So the better quality jobs you have, especially if you have an intent to invest in low and moderate income communities, which CDFIs are required to, then you are more likely to have the kind of community wealth effects that you want to come into that approach with. So I think the intentionality and measurement piece is really what differentiates impact investing. And lastly, I would just add increasingly, um, transparency is really both in the outcomes any one impact investor is having in their portfolio. Because the industry is still you know, really only 10 years in, it's really important for us as investors to share more transparency of what's working and what's not working to continue to grow the field with a more intentional focus versus um, just the broader sort of focus that can easily gear towards impact washing, as we call it more and more. So that's that's sort of how we try to set our parameters and guardrails. Yeah, it's, it's interesting on, on the intentionality point, it makes me think of you know, the kind of new corporate forms with, with public benefit corporations or public benefit LLCs and, and trying to build that into uh, kind of the, the fiduciary duties and the obligations of, of a company. Um, but CDFIs have, have had that built in, that intentionality uh, since their their inception. So it's, it's a good kind of transition before we talk specifically about PCV. Maybe if you can just give an overview on you know, what is a CDFI. I think even within the impact investing world, people may not be aware of, of what a CDFI is um, or how it kind of uh, fits into the larger impact and investing spectrum I would love to just kind of get uh, a high level background on, you know, when did they come about? What was the purpose? You mentioned they kind of have this intentionality built in. So I would love to just kind of uh, hear, hear about that. So CDFIs um, were created as an industry about 30 years ago um, by the federal government after a lot of advocacy from leaders and organizations who were really trying to bring to light the incredible discrimination, systemic racism, and redlining in the financial industry against Black and Brown communities at the time. So specifically for small business owners trying to get capital from banks, from homeowners trying to get affordable rates and housing prices, and really trying to figure out how do we create financial structures 
that are more designed with the needs of black and brown business owners and individuals and families um, to be able to bring financial systems that that work for all um, and especially to create wealth in low and moderate income communities. So the biggest metric that CDFIs are measured by um, through, in our case, the CDFI funded treasury, for example, the treasury department, is that at least 60% or more of our capital has to be invested in low and moderate income communities across the U.S. Measured by the ACS survey, we can tell, you know, by zip code, sort of what is considered a low wealth or a moderate wealth community. And then there's additional optional metrics beyond that that you can sort of choose to report on, et cetera. But I think one of the biggest learnings, frankly, for me coming into this role as a new CEO of a CDFI is I was always under the assumption that because CDFIs were created to address historic discrimination and redlining against specifically Black communities and Brown communities, that there must be a required metric around racial justice and racial equity to make sure, again, with the intentionality being there, that we're actually measuring those intentionality and outcomes. Um, but there isn't. And I was really surprised by that this year. And one of the things that we then, as a mission-driven lender um, with intentionality, have to make sure we are doing is measuring that for ourselves and holding ourselves to a higher bar year over year to make sure that beyond the you know base metrics the CDFI fund requires of us, that we are really staying true to the intentionality of that mission and the DNA for which we were founded so that we are showing how to be able to meet those outcomes better and better. And yes, I think even for impact investors, as well as definitely for small business owners in the US, we are still, uh, maybe until very recently, we are still too kept a well secret, partly because most of us don't have you know any major marketing dollars, unlike fintechs, for example, that have much bigger marketing budgets. Most entrepreneurs don't really know that we exist. And so it's really, really important to make sure that we are uh, not only playing our role where, you know, between, let's say, microfinance, where there's many CDFIs that do micro lending, up through the missing middle finance phase where PCB plays, to the bigger CDFIs that do SBA lending and banks, that we're solving for that market failure for which we were founded. Yeah. And, and um, I guess just in terms of getting that certification, right? Like, because uh, I understand PCB is a, is a nonprofit. Um, what allows you to have that certification to, you know, I imagine ensure that you're going to, uh, one, meet that 60% requirement of, of where you're, you're lending money, but uh, ideally maybe going above and beyond that with, with what you're talking about, um, almost internal requirements for making sure you're fulfilling this mission? What's the process um, for a CFI to become certified? Yeah, well, again, this is where intentionality meets measurement, right? So we can measurably say that more than 60% of our capital every year, in our case, over 80% of our capital last year went towards um, black and brown and women business owners, small business owners. So for us, it's really important to be able to show that measurement in order to not only keep our certification at sort of the base metrics, but really show the potential and mission for CDFI lenders like us. In our case, we only have our lending license to practice in California. So we're a California certified CDFI. And again, our annual measurement 
of you know being able to show that we're creating jobs in low and moderate income communities, our capital is going towards underinvested entrepreneurs is very much tied to not only the certification, but fulfilling the mission. And when we were talking about intentionality um, and, and kind of what impact means, I think you mentioned the, uh, the phrase impact washing or, or something to that effect. You know, the impact investing space, especially over the, the last 10 years, um, I think obviously has has grown in interest and there's a broad spectrum, I think is fair to say, on what qualifies as an impact investor you know, there's the impact first, uh, financial second, financial first, impact second. What do you see as kind of some of the key differentiators between a CDFI and some of the other actors within the impact investing space from, uh, you know, a PE fund that uh, has raised an impact focus fund or just traditional foundations that are not CDFI certified? So I think one way I would uh, approach this answer is by thinking about if you're considering an investment um, that you think you know might be an impact investment, or in our case, uh, really tied to our mission as a CDFI, is it an investment that a different investor, a bank or a PE fund, or another investor in that case might consider making? And if so, why are you making it? For us, it's really important that our capital is catalytic and solving for where there is failure in the market. And that is how we address missing middle financing, right? For small and diverse business owners who are traditionally and historically underinvested. So if we're considering an investment, we, we talk about for our small business owners a lot, um, you know, we're here for when banks and even SBA lending fails you. So we're literally talking about our work as a market failure. So when I think about impact with the intentionality and versus impact washing, where it starts to sort of be a feel good or nice to have, impact investing shouldn't be a nice to have outcome, right? It should be where those outcomes are absolutely core and essential to the success of your investment overall. And where there aren't always a lot of other people eager to get in on that deal, because while that sounds great in the traditional investing and venture space, you wanna be the first to get that deal, in the impact investing space, ideally, you also want to be getting deals that are pushing horizons, are solving for where there aren't a lot of other people vying because you're literally then helping create deals. You're helping create infrastructure where there was previously failure and potentially then creating more deal flow for others to be able to take forward. And so literally positioning your capital is more catalytic. And I suppose for us, that's how our approach uh, is towards the kinds of business owners and communities we we intend to work with. But I would just say about impact washing, I think it's it's the difference between it being core to your investment versus a nice to have. Yeah, and I really like how you framed it as uh, your mission is to fill the need where the market is failing. Like that should be the point, and that is where you know what you guys are are trying to serve, especially given. Uh, you know, the, the historical um, kind of systemic issues uh, we face in our country from, you know, uh, redlining, as you mentioned earlier. With respect to PCV, and you've you touched on uh, some of your guys' work, um, you guys are obviously based in Oakland, and it sounds like you lend to California businesses, uh, obviously in the low to moderate income space. But talk a little bit just about maybe some of the other services you guys are providing outside of just 
uh, you know, loans to small businesses or entrepreneurs who are otherwise uh, maybe not able to get access to that capital, but but some of those other uh, services a CDFI like yourself provides? Yeah, happy to. Um, so we are somewhat unique in the CDFI space and probably a little bit unique in the nonprofit space as a hybrid organization, where in addition to our small business lending in California specifically, we also run a business advising program that services more than just our direct portfolio, which a lot of CDFIs do that part, right? For us, we run a national business advising program through our businessadvising.org platform that is available to underserved entrepreneurs all across America. In all 50 states and territories, we now have small business owners and advisors where we match them with pro bono expert advisors who volunteer their time to support small businesses. And while in our lending, for example, we require all of our borrowers to work with a financial advisor through that platform, our borrowers, as well as other entrepreneurs across the country can work with financial advisors, marketing experts, HR experts, strategy, and now increasingly sort of crisis response and good jobs advisors to be able to get both pre and post investment support. So for example, we see in our case, we've had many small business owners come to us for lending in California. And while we'd love to be able to work with them for some reason or another, perhaps their application doesn't get approved. We always recommend people to work with a financial advisor through our platform to come back for capital. And we've had several successes like Lila Owens, who owns Cupcake and Bakery in Berkeley and Oakland, where even though she was initially turned down, she worked with a financial advisor. She came back six months later, asked for a bigger loan and was approved and not only launched her first location, then her second location in Oakland, but this September is poised to launch her third location, even in the middle of a crisis because she was able to leverage the pre-investment support that the businessadvising.org platform offered, then access our lending, continue working with an advisor, leverage another advisor on good jobs, improve the quality of her jobs and grow her business. So we really see that people who work with the business advising platform tend to almost double their revenue and grow their jobs by almost 20% in early pilots we worked on last year. And that's something we're really keen to be able to roll out to more and more underserved entrepreneurs across the country through partnerships with other organizations and CDFIs. And then um, the last, the third line of business we run is our impact investing research and consulting practice that works with foundations, fund managers, as well as other CDFIs to help them improve their impact management and measurement work. We've had some case studies and, and field building studies around due diligence frameworks um, and really help them think about their impact strategies and how they intend to implement them as well as measure them over time and really improving their outcomes year over year. Wow, that, that's terrific. I, you know, obviously there's the issue of just getting capital to communities that have been historically either disenfranchised or, or locked out from uh, accessing that. But then to uh, have these additional support mechanisms, I, I imagine, has to be uh, incredibly uh, just appreciated from these entrepreneurs who are trying to just, you know, one, get capital, but, you know, under, you know navigate uh, the system. And uh, if they don't have a banking relationship prior to this, um, I imagine it's got to be uh, just a, a huge support for them. 
Indeed. Yeah. And I think for me coming into the board role and the CEO role, what I really loved about the three programs we run is that um, unlike many organizations, we have our own internal feedback loop, right? So like our impact investing research team is the one that created based on extensive research, our good jobs framework of how, you know, what does it mean to have a quality job in America and how do you measure it? And we first user tested it with our own portfolio of borrowers in the last two years. And then now late last year, deployed it nationwide with our businessadvising.org platform and online through an open source toolkit where additional entrepreneurs can leverage the good jobs framework, look at where they are and leverage one of our advisors through the platform. So having that sort of internal feedback loop where we're able to research, user test, deploy, and continue to have a feedback loop of improving it year over year is really unique and really exciting as a leader to have that research and implementation arm in one place. Yeah. And you've mentioned a few times this this phrase quality jobs. And you know, within impact investing and when you're talking about metrics, I feel like a common theme you often will see is like, okay, well, how many jobs are created by this company. Can you expand just a, a little bit more? Because I think it's really important when we're talking about creating quality jobs and why creating jobs may not you know, sufficiently address uh, inequality um, and the issues we're facing. So I, I just want to see if you'd like to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, happy to. So when we think about good jobs in our context of PCB, um, you're right. A lot of investors look at how many jobs this investment create. And while we don't discount that it's really important for small business owners and all other, you know, other companies to be able to create jobs and generate, you know, some activity and economic activity in our communities and, you know, federally to grow the tax base and all those other great things, we have certainly seen from the last 30 years and in the great recession recovery in the last 10 years that having a jobless recovery and creating jobs that might be low wage or minimum wage, not have benefits, not have any up, upward mobility kinds of options, also tends to increase turnover and churn jobs out the back door, right? So you might be bringing people in, but if you're not doing a decent job retaining them or helping build their financial security or floor under them and their families, you're more likely to not only be churning people out the door, but burning them out and leaving them off. And so when we think about creating good jobs through our small business owners, we look at, you know, five or six major dimensions, one of which is certainly a fair and living wage, but others include things that are lower cost that managers can also do, such as stable scheduling, right? So if I know what my schedule is going to be like two to three weeks ahead of time, I can manage both my family's needs, my schedule, maybe daycare, transportation, a host of things, and it gives me a sense of predictive income, right? That I can make financial decisions for myself and my family against. Stable scheduling is one in that case, professional learning and development opportunities. Are we continuing to invest in you know, workers with micro trainings, you know, more than that to be able to continually add value to them so that they can also add more value to our business? And then also just things like, uh, are we being able to offer health benefits retirement benefits to build a more solid financial floor under people and their families. And those are really important dimensions of when we think about what it means to have a good job versus a lower wage job that 
you can't rely on and that you can't plan your life and your family's well-being around. So it's really the, the financial and mental sort of well-being and security piece that differentiates good jobs from faster churn, perhaps lower wage jobs. Yeah, and the the one thing that really stuck out when you mentioned it was the, the scheduling point. Um, and we were talking before we started about, you know, uh, people with jobs who are now having to uh, homeschool their kids or, or just deal with, you know, these, uh, this new environment that we're in. And, you know, I think the scheduling aspect was important before this, but it's probably just, you know, exponentially more important now. So people can have a, you know, a, a sense of, um, what's coming down in the next few weeks, both from a time allotment and, you know, where is, where is money coming in from? Yeah, if we don't learn that lesson in this crisis, the reality of how much any one of us has to manage, whether it's, you know, it might be homeschooling kids, like in my case, where my door is currently locked to keep them out, but it might also be just more caregiving. I mean, there's obviously lots of people being affected by this in so many different ways. Lots of people are looking out for elderly parents, neighbors. There's all kinds of other issues that are going on. Um, the protests are affecting lots of people. I mean, mental health is at a crisis right now. Many different things that um, you have to just factor for, are you looking out for your workers? Because if you're not, they're much less likely to be able to stay on with you or to thrive with you, which absolutely affects your bottom line as a business. And especially more as a small business, when you only have so many people, you can afford to, to work with you, right? So that's really when we think about working with small business owners on a good jobs agenda, we very much want to make sure that they're doing it with the approach of why it's also really good for their bottom line and their business health overall, not just that it's an investment in workers who may or may not leave them someday. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, it's a good transition to the next question I had, which, again, given the current economic climate and kind of unsure what the future holds, has PCV had to adjust its approach or operations in any way? I imagine you guys are getting a lot more requests for loans um, during the, the pandemic. And, and given the drastic need for assistance for small businesses, do you think there's greater attention on this need w within the the larger impact investing community. I, I know that last question might be a, a little broad, but just wondering if you get a sense from that, given we're again, six months into this, uh, this period. Yeah. Um, so yes, I mean, I think certainly to what you pointed out in the first month or two of this crisis, we saw over a 200% increase in our demand for capital um, on our lending business. And so very much trying to keep our doors open, keep lending through this crisis as much as we could and really just trying to figure out how to raise more capital to be able to meet more small business owners with their needs to help them survive was absolutely sort of first, um, you know, top of mind uh, as the crisis hit and putting our portfolio of borrowers on forbearance to really help them defer any costs that we could. Um, similarly, we saw an increase in the spike for our business advising platform as we realized that you know, even if there were more and more small businesses that had to shut down, shut their doors, et cetera, that if we could help with our pro bono advising to more small business owners to pivot their strategies, to get online, to, you know, keep even just partial revenues going, it would really, really help them stay eligible for capital in the following month 
if they could just show even partial revenues going. So that was a big focus in deploying our business advising, ramping up our supply of advisors and getting the word out there about it so that we also had more crisis response advisors ready to help with that sort of pivot strategy to help more folks stay afloat. So those were probably a couple of the first key changes we made. And then um, over the last few months, we have continued to take a look um, similar to what we started to do over the last couple of years, but much more concertedly on our lending policies and our underwriting to make sure that we are not only keeping our doors open to small and diverse business owners, but that we're also not being unintentionally punitive to truly small and minority owned businesses that might be, you know, solo printers, they might be founder plus one, et cetera, just because we want to invest in businesses that are growth minded in some way or creating good jobs. Right now in the midst of this crisis, we realize that we need to play as much of a maintenance and preservation game as much as we want to see gains and growth happen going forward. So really trying to make sure that our underwriting matrix was as welcoming and friendly to black and brown small business owners, especially as we saw them being so left out of the PPP process, make sure that we were keeping our lending, you know, as fast access to capital as we could. We started also doing listening sessions with me um, so that both as the new CEO that wanted to do those anyway, we also wanted to have a more direct feedback loop directly from our small business owner community to me to A, make sure that we were hearing their needs and being able to more adaptively respond with our products and services appropriately, but also that we were integrating their needs um, and feedback into the broader conversations we have with policymakers, investors, foundations, peer organizations to raise attention that's truly coming from them. Um, for example, based on some of the needs expressed by several of our black and brown business owners, we started to really aggressively try to raise grant capital, not only for our organization's you know, well-being and survival, but specifically to pair with our lending capital to bring down the costs and fees related to our lending even further and to build a small grants program along with our lending to be able to provide potentially some cash relief. And especially as people have worked with us to create you know, good jobs coming into this crisis, to help them hang on to those jobs and the good impact they had started to make so that we play again a preservation game, better positioning them to survive through this crisis. And when we think about how we then you know, marry with impact investing in our work, that to me is really a shining example of what we're trying to do in raising blended finance to be able to maintain and rebuild small business owners and hang on to their jobs with a social impact objective so that we're showing up in the way that they need us to. And we're working with them on maintaining that impact as much as we can. So when I think about the opportunity for impact investors that you asked about, for me, I think it's really an opportunity for both impact investors, foundations, companies to put their money where their mouth is when they talk about social impact, racial justice. I mean, these kinds of CDFI opportunities are an example to center black and brown communities and individuals with also just more long-term and patient capital that has a much better effect of gener regenerative and reparative capitalism, not kinds of extractive approaches that we've seen deplete 
too many resources from too many communities over the last 10 to 30 years. Yeah. Uh, one, it, it sounds like you guys have been extremely active in, in adapting to to this environment. And I think the, the point you make on the blended capital and also kind of uh, putting your money where your mouth is. Um, I, I know PCV is a partner of the California Small Enterprise Task Force and is a participating CDFI in the Rebuilding Loan Fund, which is targeted at you know helping micro businesses, um, underserved businesses, businesses that were left out of PPP, and was recently endorsed by the California Infrastructure and Economic Development Bank. Uh, and you guys are currently in the process of fundraising. Uh, talk a little bit about the role of PCV, but also why CDFIs are key to the case task force objective of helping micro businesses across the state. Sure. So PCV is a pretty unique statewide mission-driven lender in that we not only intentionally do non-SBA lending to make our capital most available to historically underinvested black and brown business owners, um, but also to make sure that we measure that year over year and further dive deeper into small and, and even you know, some micro businesses um, to keep our, our capital super available there. So when we think about the role of CDFIs in uh, the California Small Business Rebuilding Fund, I think if nothing else, we've certainly seen from the PPP rollout that without working through and centering CDFIs and small business owners, you're not very likely to reach them, right? That's why CDFIs were created. So I think CDFIs like us are absolutely essential to the work of this task force because we not only have the reach and communities we're already serving that are small and diverse business owners, we also have the kinds of products and services designed and structured with their needs in mind, not that we're trying to bring a top-down financial system approach that banks have a much more uniform approach to down to where markets don't work very well. And so I think that is partly why it's so essential to work through CDFIs like ours to be able to reach those that are most struggling to survive. We've already seen almost half of the black and brown small businesses in California go under, according to the latest NBER reports. And so we're really playing a survival game as much as a jobs maintenance um, and future growth game right now. And that's very much why we need both the rebuilding fund and additional impact investors and foundations to get off the sidelines and invest in funds like this, because this is probably one of the most unique and collaborative blended finance facilities that I've seen respond in the crisis yet. And it has the potential then to not only raise the kind of capital that we need in terms of the blended layers, but also more aligned with the time horizons that we need for CDFIs and our small business owners to get through this crisis, which we're still in at the six month, almost six month mark now, the recovery will take quite a while, right? Especially for it to be a more inclusive and good recovery than the last one was. And um, before the news cycle shifts and people's attention shift, um, potentially, we, we need to be able to raise the kind of capital that's going to stay with us to be able to really help more of them have a better chance at getting to that recovery. Um, so really excited to be part of something like this, along with um, several of the other CDFIs uh, that we've helped bring into this um, collaboration, because uh, it's really a rare and unique um, facility in that case. 
Yeah, that, that's terrific. And you know, it ties to what you kind of started off the podcast talking about this, this public and private partnership. And obviously, this is a, a unique time and there's a, a unique need more so than uh, previously, though I think the, the need was still always there. And, and as you mentioned, hopefully the case fund is, is rolled out and can serve these small businesses during this time period, but also serve as a model going forward to uh, use blended capital to uh, reach these, these micro businesses uh, that for, for so often um, ha- have been left out or just, you know, communities that have been, been disenfranchised and, and lacked access to capital or patient capital, as you mentioned, not uh, extractive capital. We're, we're nearing the end of our time. So I'll wrap things up with one final question, which is just what, what advice do you have for individuals or companies looking to move into the impact investing space or incorporate impact ESG or, or purpose into their, their current projects? I liked what you said about getting off the sideline, but I'll see if you have any other uh, advice. Yeah. um, I mean, honestly, I think my biggest advice is to jump in. Like there is literally no time like the present to participate in literally saving impact and any kind of social or environmental impact you want to have through organizations that are community led, led by black and brown leaders and organizations that have the potential to really reach these small business owners and workers more and more directly. And, you know, whether you want to participate with $20 to start through a community investment note like Calvert has, C-Note has retail investment options that are super accessible from 20 to, you know, much more than that. Um, Obviously, the case task force has the ability to absorb large amounts of capital. We really don't have time right now for foundations and, and other bigger players to go through extensive strategy reviews and analysis paralysis that you know, too many of them have the reputation of going through um, before they decide where to deploy their capital and get off the sidelines. We need more people to jump in and join us just to be able to help more folks survive this crisis if we want to not only maintain social impact, but address the kinds of things too many people complain about in terms of pipeline of deal flow. We're going to have a much worse pipeline of deal flow in a year or two if we don't help more of them survive right now. So really, I think whether it's joining for, you know, $20 in a retail investment or much more, there are so many good options available these days that weren't even available 10 years ago. There's really no excuse in not participating. Um, And if, you know, anyone needs help, we're accessible. There's good options out there, but we just really need more people to join us in, uh, in helping preserve some of the social impact. I, I think that is a, a great place and a great message to end on. Before we sign off, I, I just want to thank you again, Bobo, for joining me today on the Impactful Conversations podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you about both uh, Pacific Community Ventures, uh, CDFIs, and I look forward to seeing your continued impact in this space and the California Rebuilding Fund as well. Um, For more information on Pacific Community Ventures, you can visit their website at pacificcommunityventures.org. And for more information on MoFo's impact investing practice and for additional resources, please visit our Impact Resource Center and blog, both linked in this podcast description. Uh, And please also make sure to subscribe to the Impactful Conversations podcast so you do not miss an episode. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. 
If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.